Join me if you would in Romans. We're going to be back in Romans this morning. Romans chapter 15. My soul was blessed this morning coming upstairs right at the end of Sunday school. Here's some of the young folks up here. They're reciting uh, doctrinal truth, things about God. You know, it's kind of unfortunate. The term catechism has kind of taken on a wrongful connotation, particularly because of one major system that uses that. But catechism is just the memorization of doctrinal truth. You know, there was a time when churches all did that uh, centuries ago, and so it's a blessing to see little people memorizing who, what is the Trinity, who is God, who is Christ, what is His nature, what is sin, what is man. And you talk about foundational issues for understanding the world we live in and why we're here. So what a, what a blessing that is. And pray that God will bless that and use that and build strong foundations in these young lives. If you're there in Romans, go ahead and stand if you're able to. I will read a few verses. Romans 15. We're going to begin in verse 8 and go through verse 13. <coughs> now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, For this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. And again he saith, Rejoice, ye Gentiles, with this people. And again, Praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and laud him, all ye people. And again, Esaias saith, There shall be a root of Jesse. And he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles trust. Now, the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. Let's pray one more time. Father, we come once again to this banquet table and acknowledge your desire to feed us. But Lord, none of us are here by accident. And I pray, Lord, that you would take the portion of this banquet table intended for us and feed our souls this morning. Father, you know the joys that some here are carrying. You know the sorrows, the perplexities, the heartache, the fear. You know the unknowns that will come upon us tomorrow, next week, next month. And Father, we pray that you would minister to our souls this morning. Lord, give me a mouth to speak and give all of us ears to hear, to really discern thy mind. Father, thank you for giving us truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Of course, uh, last time we were in Romans, uh, we were uh, kind of buttoning up, spending uh, several weeks dealing with the subject of what the Bible refers to as doubtful disputations, uh, principles and dealing with areas of disagreement which aren't clearly defined in the Scriptures or where the proper application of, of Bible principles can lead to a rightly uh, differing viewpoint. And of course, I'll emphasize again, the Lord is very straightforward with us respecting the fact that these differences will always exist. And if any one of us has uh, lofty ambitions, 
Uh, maybe when you first came to Christ, this is uh, what happened. This is certainly what happened to me. And my experience isn't the rule for all, I realize. But sometimes, uh, early in our Christian life, right at the very beginning, we sort of have this idea that we're going to find a group of Christian people with whom we're going to agree on every single jot and tittle. And what we do there is uh, set ourselves up for disappointment. Uh, the Lord has not ordained the local church to function that way. God has done this on purpose, and I think there's a lot of reasons, but for one thing, it helps all of us to be sharpened and shaped. It helps all of us to grow in our charity and in our patience as we deal with these type of things on an ongoing basis. And we ended with the command there in verse 7, to receive ye one another. And again, that means to receive into friendship. And again, the emphasis is not overlooking obvious sin. This doesn't mean say nothing to anybody about error. We have to keep that in context. Uh, but he's saying in areas that fit into Romans 14, don't stiff arm your brethren as you grow in Christ together. Receive ye one another as Christ receives us. Again, how was that? It was right where we were. It was knowing that we're construction projects and that we're always going to be construction projects to the glory of God. As God adds to the assembly, He's bringing in one more imperfect brick to put in His glorious building project that one day is going to be without blemish in practice as well as standing. But how else did Christ receive us? Now, Christ received us with the goal of promoting rightful unity. And again, I say rightful unity. Uh, unity is not a sports arena filled with 40,000 people of every religion under the sun with ear-splitting music and everybody agreeing they're just going to uh, like Jesus and say the word love a lot. That is not unity. That is total confusion. Now, Bible unity is based upon subjection to the written word of God. But nonetheless, God did intend for the New Testament church to be a mosaic. Different color tiles, different pieces, different colors, different cultural backgrounds are coming together to form one composite picture for His glory. Somebody says, yeah, but we're so different. Well, that may be the case. I think all of us probably know the experience that you meet another a Christian brother or sister, and you're convinced this person belongs to God, but as you get to know them, you realize outside of Christ, uh, we really have nothing in common. Ever had that happen? In fact, uh, one of my best friends, that's the case. I've often marveled over years as we talk, I think, you know, if it was not for the Lord, we would be in totally different stratospheres. We're different in about every way imaginable, uh, except that. We tend to, I guess, gravitate towards people that are uh, most like us. And uh, this is precisely why, by the way, Paul goes back to the example of Jew and Gentile here and their collision within the confines of this relatively new entity at the time known as the New Testament church. Now, we're not technically covering doubtful disputations more, but uh, what this morning's discussion is doing is kind of it's kind of the final knot in bringing this whole package together. He's sort of bringing the discussion 
uh, back where he started, in a sense, with the difference between Jews and Gentiles. Now, I think we hear those two terms, Jew and Gentile, Jew and Gentile. We hear them so frequently that sometimes the poignancy of the difference that's intended to be communicated is sort of lost. I think part of the reason is, if you examine the roots of Western culture, it is very, very much a blending of Greek thinking with Judaism. And uh, that blending of those has sort of opened us up to principles from both sides. So I think maybe we lose some of the force of the example if we don't stop to think about what's actually being said. It's really extremely difficult to find a more different two groups than Jew and Gentile, especially the Greek Gentiles, uh, which is where these people found themselves dwelling in a, in a Greek culture. Setting aside the obvious language and historical differences, I mean, the Jews were intensely monotheistic. One God, one God alone. Well, uh, amen, we would say. We're monotheistic. Except, you see, the Jews were so intensely monotheistic that they became enraged at the suggestion of a trinity. Even though their scriptures, beginning in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image. That was hinted at at the very beginning. The Lord our God is one Lord. Jehovah, our Elohim, is one Jehovah. There's a plurality and a singularity hinted at in both of those statements put together. But you see, the Jews fought against the idea of a trinity. When Christ said He's the Son of God, they understood. You can't be an offspring of God. You can't be part infinite. He's saying He's equal with God. That's why they picked up stones to stone Him. They got the point. And by the way, the Jews today would ac accuse you and I of having three gods. On the other side, you had the Greeks. Uh, they weren't so monotheistic. They were polytheistic, which obviously is an error. But yet they would have had an easier time picking up the doctrine of the Trinity. That would have been easy for them, naturally speaking, because of where they came from. Uh, the Jews largely viewed God as residing in one location. To them, that temple in Jerusalem equaled the presence of God. And while they may not have verbalized that, they acted that way. And so to them, that, that was the holy place. That was where God lived. And uh, the Greeks, of course, weren't so confined. The idea of their many gods being in multiple places wasn't new thought territory. Now, there's a grain of truth in both. Did God give the temple to worship in? Yes. But does God live in a temple? No. So that would have caused contention. The Jews had this affinity for rules. Now that started with the Mosaic Law, with the 613 commands given there. But thanks to the rabbis and to the Pharisaical system and to the Sadducees that had arisen over the centuries, now they had rules on top of rules on top of rules and then they had lists of rules for how to keep their rules on top of their rules. The Jews just, just gravitated towards legal code. The Greeks, of course, did not. By the way, I do think that may have caused some problems when it came to issues of Christian liberty. You know, here's the Jews saying, we've got to have a committee for that, we've got to have a list for that, we've got to have rules for that, we've got to have guidelines, and, and it kept growing. And the Greeks on the other side are saying, why? 
Once again, the balance is in the middle. Are guidelines important? Yes, but not to be so stifling that that becomes the pinnacle and pretty soon you're worshiping a list and not God. The Jews viewed the patriarchs as almost many gods in and of themselves. I mean, I think, how do you blaspheme Moses? What does that insinuate? Moses is way up here on a pedestal, right? Once again, the Greeks would have come in and thought, Moses was a guy. I'm not going to worship him. To say something negative about Moses, oh boy. Those are fighting words. The Jews had a huge list of foods they wouldn't touch. Of course, the Gentiles didn't. How about this one? The Jews viewed circumcision as necessary. That was given to the seed of Abraham. Now imagine this for a minute. Little Jews had grown up. They read a story of David. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? In their mind, uncircumcision equaled vile, godless, wicked, heathen. They'd been raised that way. Here comes the Greeks. Uh, the Greek games were conducted in the nude. It's not a good thing, it's just what they did. Uh, they worshipped the human body, so much so that they loved to examine the anatomy of the athletes out there competing because the human body was just so marvelous. So to the Greek, circumcision was this reprehensible mutilation of the body. Now think about this. These come together in the New Testament church. And God's not requiring them to be circumcised. And God's not requiring them to stop. Potential for problem? Good to see you here, brother. And uh, one's thinking, even though you're a, a filthy, defiled, Philistine heathen. And the other one's saying, oh, it's good to see you, brother. Even though you're a reprehensible body mutilator. How about their calendars? And the Jews kept a lunar calendar based on the moon cycles. And uh, they kept the Sabbath. I mean, every seven days you could go through the Jewish marketplaces and you could fire a cannon down and all you hit is air. They weren't working. They weren't plying at their trades. I'm not going to get into all the reasons why, but the lunar calendar and the Sabbath were actually extremely offensive to the Greek culture. Both of those were. And consider this. Jews actually had two calendars, you remember? If you've ever tried to follow their lunar calendar and how they make up for the lost days, it's confusing. But they had a civil calendar, and then they had a ceremonial calendar where the fourth month became the first month. So, uh, you know, hope makes our church calendar. Uh, now, none of us this morning are arguing that today is called September 17th. Imagine if you had to make three different church calendars to avoid an argument. Well, that's not my first day of the week. That's not my first month. That's my fourth month. I don't care if it's your fourth month. That's my seventh month. And so on it would have gone. How about how they viewed the world? You know, to the Jew, the world was two classes. There was Jew and there was Gentile. I guess you could make a case and say, what about Samaritans? They were the half-breeds, right? Uh, but basically all they saw was the Gentile half, so they lumped them in the same category. There was Jew, 
the privileged covenant people, and then there was everybody else who's not quite as important to God. That's how they viewed things. How about the Greek? The Greek also divided the world into two classes. This is why Paul, when he says he's debtor in the early uh, part of Romans, he says to the Greek and to the barbarian. What he was using is their cultural division. To the Greek culture, there were two classes. There was Greek and barbarian. There was those that were artistic and sophisticated and intellectual and philosophical. And then there was everybody else who's a barbarian who hasn't wised up enough to see how wonderful Greek culture is. And so you had these deep-seated prejudices from these two groups already existing for centuries uh, when they came together. And I've just touched the tip of the iceberg, by the way. There's a lot more differences that could be discussed, but hopefully we get the point. And do you realize, if you pay attention to the chronology in the book of Acts, the church at Jerusalem, which went to 3,000 on day one, and then thousands more were added. The church in Jerusalem was entirely Jewish at the beginning. In fact, if you follow the chronology, it was years before that changed. The apostles had been told, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world, but they were very slow to hear that commandment. Uh, who was the first one to go to Samaria? It wasn't one of the apostles. It was one of the deacons, Philip. And then finally, their leader among the group of the apostles, Peter, remember he has to have the vision showed to him three times to say, get out and do what I'm saying. And so you got this church of thousands of people coming out of Judaism, and all the people are Jewish, and they're very slow to go to the Gentile dogs. All of a sudden the door opens, and here comes the Gentiles. Imagine when the first Gentiles began to appear. Someone says, uh, say, Mr. Rabinowitz, you know, we never had these problems until they showed up. That would have happened. Uh, people are always people. Now, God brought these two together on purpose at the very inception of the church age. Do we get that picture? God took these vastly different people groups knowing those massive differences and on purpose brought them together in one, in Christ. And so the point is, these doubtful disputation areas, they're nothing new. They were there from the beginning, and the Lord knew that, and He did that on purpose. Think what Christ unifies for a minute. He unifies God and man, not just reconciling us. Yes, He brings the two parties together, but He unifies the nature of God and man. He takes God 100% and, and fully man, and He unifies them into one living person. He unifies the Old Testament and the New Testament into one glorious hope. He unifies the Jew and the Gentile into one mysterious body by design. Now, first of all, Christ came to present himself as a Savior to all of the world. You notice quickly in verses 8 and 9, he mentions Jew and Gentile. Now, we're going to say more on that in a minute, but the point at the outset is he came as a Savior to all men. I mean, you know, we sing the song, Now I belong to Jesus. 
Jesus belongs to me. Now, uh, God being infinite, yes, that's true. If you belong to Christ, you can have a close walk with him as though nobody else existed. Okay, that's one side of it. But let's not forget the balancing truth to that, and here's what that is. Jesus really, in the final sense, doesn't belong to anybody. Let's say that, uh, let's see you young people, can you imagine you're in a classroom, okay? Let's say you've got 40 students in a classroom, and the teacher says, all right, we're going to do something different today. She picks three students. Now, what this teacher knows is she's not picking these students because they're the funniest or the smartest or the nicest looking or they have the best grades. She's picking them for reasons that she knows and they don't. And she walks up to these three students and she says, I want you to take this bag of Snickers bars and hold on to it for me. In fact, you can open up the pack and eat one and you just put that on your desk and hold it. Now, what would happen through the course of that day? Here you have the students seated next to them and their eyes are, what are they doing? How come he got the bag of candy bars? My grades are better than his. Well, this isn't fair. I don't get it. And so on one hand, there's this bitter envying kind of growing. And what's happening in the mind of the three students with the candy bars? Well, I always knew I was destined to shine in this world. It really doesn't surprise me a whole lot that the teacher did pick me, actually, come to think of it. I guess I do deserve these candy bars. And now, at the end of the day, the teacher says, okay, now, you three with the bags of candy bars, I want you to open them up, I want you to eat one more, and then I want you to give two to every single person in this classroom. Now what? These students apparently didn't get, they were merely custodians of a, of a blessing. And now... All that pride and all that arrogance and all that what they thought about themselves has now turned to anger and frustration at the other students because now I have to share with them? And by the way, the teacher never said, these are only to you, you're going to keep them for good. Now that's a childish example, but let me point out, that is exactly what human nature has done all throughout history. Multiple times in history, God has chosen a particular nation as with the Jews, or a people group. And he has made them the custodians of certain spiritual blessings, which were never intended for them to consume upon themselves. They were intended to bless others ultimately. And what happens? The result is generally this standoffish pride and arrogance that I have it, and I don't want to give it to you. I mean, the Jew would have said in those early days, now wait a minute, let's get something straight. This is our Messiah. You got that? The scriptures came through us. Abraham was one of us. Jesus was Jewish of the tribe of Judah. He's coming to fulfill a kingdom. God promised to us, are you getting this Gentile? And so let's put away this business of Jesus belonging to you too. This is our Messiah. And then, uh, here's Mr. Gentile. He says, all right, now wait a minute. You rejected your Messiah. In fact, last I checked, one of your Pharisees trained the feet of Gamaliel. You heard what he's doing? 
Why, he's traveling way outside Jerusalem to the ends of the known world to teach this message to the Gentiles. What do you say about that one? I'd say it's pretty clear that you threw your Messiah out the door, and now the door's been opened to us, so he is our Messiah now. Neither one's true. But do you see how that would have caused this? And listen, that kind of sinful possession mentality can happen in a lot of ways. Sometimes it happens in interpersonal conflict. Another brother or sister you uh, disagree with. By the way, I have to watch this as a pastor. Not all disagreements are of the same level. Now, there's brethren that I don't agree with on some major things, but I have to concede they're being used of God. One of the finest examples that used to confound me, but now I bless God for it. You know, throughout the years, this is what's happened in the Calvinism-Arminianism debate. Both sides trench in, and they've got the monopoly on God, and those other people are blasphemers, and they're missing the boat. Look, the reality is God has used people out of both camps in history. I think of Whitfield and Wesley. Boy, did they butt heads. But I'll tell you, both of those men were used to bring thousands and thousands to Christ. They preached a depraved humanity. They preached a hot hell. They preached a holy God. They preached a risen Christ. They preached a new birth. And God worked through them. It's a tendency in churches. Can I say this morning that Jesus does not belong to Baptist churches? We have certain distinctives we hold. We don't plan to stop. But let's not say he's not using anybody else. It happens in nations. Tell me something. Why is it when you try to picture Jesus, you think of some picture or painting you saw, and he's Anglo-Saxon? Why? Because the English-speaking world has been blessed so long with the goodness of God that they think Jesus belongs to them. Now he must have genetically, mystically in the heavens turned into a guy with blonde hair and blue eyes. Amazing. No, he's Jewish. And he'll always be Jewish. Of course, the greatest ministry Christ came to fulfill towards us was taking away our sins. Now the Jews were looking for a savior from Rome. The Gentiles were looking for a proof of the Old Testament God that fit their ideal of masculinity and strength and manhood, and both were bitterly disappointed unless their perspective changed. Well, what's the greatest miracle? What's the greatest power Jesus has? What's the greatest miracle he performed? John 14. Remember he says, this is after he raised Lazarus from the dead. He told the disciples, you're going to do greater works than these. Now, you trace that through. Did the disciples do a broader panorama and greater physical miracles than Christ? Absolutely not. You can't make that case. Where did they raise someone who'd been dead four days? They never did that. But what he was speaking to is the 3,000-fold miracle that took place on the day of Pentecost when these Jews who were dead in trespasses and sins and the sinful man Peter gets up in the power of the Holy Ghost 
And effectively, God looked at 3,000 people in their spiritual tombs and he said, you arise. That is a great miracle. I told the boys in my Sunday school class this morning, do you know something? Salvation is a greater miracle than me walking out this door and going into the cemetery and walking up to a grave and saying, come up out of there. Oh, you'd be amazed if I did that. But can I tell you something? The taking of a soul dead in trespasses and sins and rising them eternally to spiritual life in Christ is a greater miracle than that. That is what Christ primarily came to accomplish. Now, he did come to save all the world, but it must also be maintained he came with a dual ministry to both Jew and Gentile. I mean, think about this. When I say dual ministry, what did the coming of the Messiah mean to a Jew? Uh, here was a perfect example of the righteousness for which they had been trying to seek through the law for generations, and if they were honest, they knew they could never attain to. In Christ, they saw the mediator between God and man, just like Moses prophesied. You remember? Moses told the people, God's going to raise up a prophet like unto me. They'd ask Moses, you speak to God because we're too afraid. And Moses says, listen, the day's going to come, although they didn't understand it at the time, when God's going to become man and bring the two together. And those perceptive Jews that were paying attention to the word of God understood that when they saw him for who he was. To the Jew, he was the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. All the sacrifices, all the blood, all the stories, all the, all the tales about David and of the kings and of the future promises, all of those were embodied in the person of Christ when he came. That was what came out of the forefront to the Jewish person. What about to the Gentile? Christ is the reconciler of Jews and Gentiles into one brotherhood. He's the mediator of the new covenant of which they're grafted in. He's the personal manifestation of God's mercy. Now you see that in verse 9. We're going to say more on that in a minute, so set it on the shelf for a second. But to all the world, he's the source of hope. He's the prince of peace and joy. He's the dispenser of the Holy Spirit. Now verse 8 says, Christ came as a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God. Now, what that's saying is he came to the Jews first. Minister of the circumcision, he came from the Jews as an offspring, and he came to the Jews, why? It says to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. What promises? Uh, promises of a national future. Uh, promises concerning the land that we refer to as Palestine. The promises concerning a literal kingdom and none other than the Son of God sitting on the throne of their patriarch, David. In fact, keep your finger there. Turn to Luke 1. Let me illustrate what I'm saying. Luke chapter 1. This is the birth of Christ. Now, don't miss what's emphasized here. And none of these angels or people are speaking in error. Now, keep in mind, Luke is the gospel written by Dr. Luke to the man Theophilus, which was written primarily to a Greek audience. What were they expecting when Christ came? Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 33. Now here's the angel appearing to Mary, and what does he say? 
Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. Verse 30, And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. <clears throat> he shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Look what's told to Mary by the angel when he is about to be born. This is the one that's going to fulfill all of the promises concerning a future kingdom. You see, at this point, they didn't know there was going to be a 2,000 plus year interval. So what they were looking for was the son of David to sit on that throne. The angel says that to Mary. Uh, how about jump ahead to verse 46. This is Mary, what's called her Magnificat. Here's her soul magnifying the Lord, verse, 40, verse 46. Look at verse 51. He has showed strength with his arm and has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. Look at verse 54. He hath opened his serpent Israel or helped them in remembrance of his mercy as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. Again, what is she looking back to? And how about the spirit-filled prophecy of Zacharias on the same page for some of you? That's in verse 67 and following. Zacharias in verse 67 is filled with the Holy Ghost. Look at verse 69. He's saying, God hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all them that hate us, to perform, perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Back in Romans. Now you read those and you automatically filter that through New Testament theology. If you know the scriptures and you know the timeline of end times events, you automatically recognize that as something that is yet future. But keep in mind... Christ came at first, part of his dual ministry was to present himself as the legitimate king of the Jews. That's what they were looking for. Now there's all kinds of theological debate. What if they had received him as king? He wouldn't have gone to the cross. God knew that. I don't have an answer for that. But to the Jews, he came as the legitimate fulfillment of all of the promises that had been given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and Solomon, and following. But just like John said, he came into his own, and his own received him not. Now the word own there is two slightly different Greek words. He came into his own, that's talking about things, items, places. He came into his own land. He came into his own temple. And then the other word own speaks of people. He came unto his own, and his own people received him not. They passively allowed Herod to murder the forerunner to their coming king. You ever read that and find it amazing? The coming of John the Baptist had been promised four centuries earlier. Here he comes. And when he's in prison, there's no public demonstrations, free John the Baptist, justice for John. Remember, this is the same group that sometime later would cry out, Give us Barabbas! 
But when John was in prison, there was no such outcry. They just let it happen. So they passively let John the Baptist be murdered. Then they asked for the murder of the king himself. Crucify him. Away with this man. Let his blood be upon us and upon our children. Are you sure about that? And then... In Acts chapter 7, they personally murdered with their own hands Stephen when he forcefully declared their wickedness. And then in Acts 18 in Macedonia, here's the Jews opposing themselves and blaspheming. And Paul shakes his raiment and says, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean from henceforth. I will go unto the Gentiles. So the kingdom then, the legitimate offer of Christ as king, was postponed. It's like God hit a big pause button, which of course is the subject of Romans 9 through 11. Romans 9 through 11 gives God's greater purposes concerning Israel as a nation. And yes, it's literal and it means what it says. Romans 9, 10, 11, past, present, and future, respectively. But in that passage, Paul makes it plain it was through Israel's fall. That salvation came to the Gentiles, not through their success. And of course, the point there is, if God can use such colossal failure to bring millions of Christ, what's He going to do when they listen? Oh, what a glorious day is coming, but it's not here yet. So then the message of Christ is sent far hence to the Gentiles, and in verse 8, what's the effect? Or verse 9, that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. Now that doesn't mean the Jews don't need or understand mercy. But any Gentile in history who understood that the God of the Jews was the only true God was also true of one other glaring fact, that He was a second-class citizen, or at least they felt that way. I mean, think of the Queen of Sheba. Here she comes to have her questions answered. She says the half has never been told. She's just, she's overwhelmed by what she sees. Now she was aware God was in that place. She was aware God had blessed the Jewish people. She was apparently aware that their God was the only one. But as she was going away in that caravan, I say she was also aware of this. She was an outsider. She felt like a lot of that didn't belong to her. And listen... That very perception is what forms the backdrop for Christ's conversation with the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15. You remember, here comes this, it says, a woman of Canaan. <clears throat> uh, by the way, she's called a Syrophoenician in the parallel passage. The Syrophoenicians were descendants of the Canaanites. And so she comes to Christ and she addresses him in an interesting manner. She says, son of David. She's acknowledging he's the fulfillment of the promises to sit on the throne of Israel. She got that. Son of David, she says, and what does she say next? Have mercy on me. My daughter's afflicted with this devil. And uh, Christ says something very interesting. He says, it's not meat or proper to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. I wonder if that would have been enough to drive most of us away. But that's not what he was doing. He knew her. He knew her thoughts. And he was proving something to you and I through that simple conversation. 
He says that it's not fitting to take the children, that's Israel's blessings or Snickers bars, and give them to the filthy Gentiles. And she says, truth, Lord. Uh, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And he says, oh, woman, great is thy faith. Why? What was so great about her faith? She understood the Jews were the God-ordained custodians of the covenants. But here's what else she got. God is a God that delights in mercy. Don't you find it ironic that it's inserted there, Canaanites? This is a woman that came as a descendant of the very people that when they went into the land of Palestine in the days of Joshua, they were to utterly exterminate. I wonder if that woman read the story of Rahab and went, ah, I see that people can be sinful and God can judge, but those that seek Him, oh, they'll, they'll find Him. The Lord says, great is thy faith. And then we have these several quick successions given, or these several quotations given in quick succession, and I hope that came out as we were reading it. Verse 9, I'll confess thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. And again, verse 10, and again, verse 11, and again, verse 12. He's like saying, listen, Here's the point, and in case you missed it, here it is again. And in case you missed it, here it is again. And in case you missed it, here it is again. What's the point? Well, first of all, those passages prove it was always in the heart of God to extend mercy to the Gentiles. I'm going to tell you some statistics on mercy that you might find interesting. You know, you look up the words mercy and merciful. They appear 316 times in our English Bible. Did you know that 251 of those are in the Old Testament? That means God's mercy is mentioned four times as much in the Old Testament as the New. Do you know where the first mention is? of God being merciful and of a man verbalizing God's mercy? Do you know where that is? It's towards the man Lot after he's drugged out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now you want to see mercy? There it is. We talked about in the Sunday school class this morning. The angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is generally it's the appearance of Christ. It's a theophany. It's an Old Testament appearance of the Son of God. And you know, he appears 80 times in the Old Testament. 20 of those occur in one book. Anybody want to guess which book? Judges. The greatest period of spiritual and moral confusion and evil in Israel's history. And there you have 25% of all of Christ's Old Testament appearances mentioned in that book. You tell me that's not mercy. Mercy is God's goodness confronting guilt and suffering. And listen, even if there were no guilt and suffering in the world, God would still be merciful. But human guilt and suffering is the theater on which it's displayed for all the world to see. Mercy is an attribute of God. Here's what that means. It's not something God all of a sudden caught in the New Testament. 
Many people view God that way. In the Old Testament, he was one way, and then he just got really nice. No, no. It was always in the heart of God to be merciful. You remember when God declares his name unto Moses? You remember what he says? The Lord, the Lord God, and he speaks of his mercy. How he likes to overlook transgressions. How he wants to pardon iniquity. Listen, that is who God is. He's a God of judgment, yes, but he's also a God of mercy. And listen, this is something that Solomon understood. The very apex of Israel's history. Remember the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 8? And Solomon offers this tremendous prayer. Do you realize what he prayed for, though? Listen to this. This is at the dedication of Solomon's temple, the high point in Israel's history up to that point. Here's what he's praying. Moreover, concerning a stranger, that's a Gentile, that is not of thy people Israel, but cometh out of a far country for thy name's sake, for they shall hear of thy great name and thy strong hand and of thy stretched out arm, when he shall come and pray towards this house, Hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, and do according to all that the stranger calleth thee for. You mean Solomon at the dedication of the temple prayed that God would hear the prayers of every single Gentile that came there to seek him? Yes. Yet that very truth would have made a Jew in the first century stone somebody. And there it was. In their own scriptures. It's an interesting search. If you've not done it, I recommend that you do. Look up the word stranger in the Old Testament. Generally, that's speaking of Gentiles. And I want to say in every single case, I think there's a couple other usages, but most of the time it's speaking of Gentiles, particularly in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. How did God view Gentiles in the Old Testament? This is an important exercise. I think a lot of stuff has been added that wasn't there at the beginning. Let me just give you a few quick statements out of there. Thou shalt not oppress a stranger. Uh, they were commanded to leave the edges of their vineyards for the strangers to eat who were poor. Ye shall have one manner of law as well for the stranger. Did you hear that? One law for both. How about this one? And if a stranger shall sojourn among you and will keep the Passover unto the Lord according to the ordinance of the Passover and according to the manner thereof, so shall he do. Ye shall have one ordinance, both for the stranger and for him that was born in the land. Now you mean to tell me that the Gentile proselyte was allowed to come into the tabernacle in the temple area technically and offer the Passover? Yes, that is what that means. How about this one? The stranger, the Gentile that dwelleth with you, shall be unto you as one born among you. And thou shalt love him as thyself. For ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. A stranger, a Gentile, couldn't be priest, but yet again, neither could most of the Jews. A stranger couldn't be king, but yet again, neither could most of the Jews. Uh, you could charge interest from a stranger, but he was to be loved as their own self and to be accepted into proper worship, not oppressed or vexed. But what'd they do? They clung to that sack of candy bars real good and tight. And they weren't about to give them away. 
You know, the original tabernacle, it had the Holy of Holies, it had the holy place, and it had the courtyard. Do you know by the time Herod's temple came around how much that had changed? Herod's temple was quite a structure. Remember, it was decades in building. But in Jesus' time, when you came into the temple area, uh, first of all, you would enter what was called the court of the Gentiles, which, by the way, was never given by God. You would enter the court of the Gentiles, and that was as far as a Gentile could go. And uh, in front of you there in that court was this massive stone wall. And uh, through the, uh, just next to the gateway there, there was an inscription that said something of the effect, if you are a Gentile and you go beyond this wall and you're found out, you will be executed and it's your fault. That's what it said. So... Uh, to the Gentile, coming into the temple was one big neon, no trespassing sign. You're not worthy. You're not allowed. By the way, uh, when Paul in Ephesians says that God has broken down the middle wall of partition between us, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about Jew and Gentile. And Paul knew in the Gentile mind when they walked into the temple, there's this massive wall in front of them. And Paul says, listen, God took that wall and he's dashed it to pieces. Right? It was like Reagan said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. That's what Christ did. Okay, so you go from the court of the Gentiles and, and then you come to the court of the women. And that was as far as Jewish women could go. Now, uh, they were allowed to peek over the balcony, but they, they couldn't go any further. And then you had a court of Israel. That was where all the Jewish men could go. And then beyond that, you had the court of the priests, which was where the priests could go. And, and by the way, it's a strange anomaly in Roman history, but they actually backed up that threat in the court of Gentiles with Roman law. They gave the Jews authority to execute people for desecrating their temple. The Romans backed that up, actually. That wasn't a normal thing for Rome, but they made an exception there. So basically... Privilege had been turned into arrogance and disdain, and the Gentile world had gotten the message loud and clear. These four quotations, it's really astounding what the Holy Spirit does, and we don't really have time to go into in depth. We'll just touch on them. Where is he quoting from? Verse 9, he's quoting from 2 Samuel 22.50, which is repeated in Psalm 18. Verse 10, he's quoting from Deuteronomy 32. Verse 11, he's quoting from Psalm 117. Verse 12, he's quoting from Isaiah, verses 1 and 10. Now, if you notice who's quoted, he's quoting David and Moses and Isaiah. Now, it's hard to put together a more compelling group of witnesses to the Jewish people. He took their great king David, he took their great lawgiver Moses, and he took what was arguably the greatest of their prophets, and he said, look, all three of these bear witness that it was in the heart of God to extend mercy to the Gentile people from the beginning. In fact, Moses' quote is during the Song of Moses. The major theme of that song is judgment, Deuteronomy 32. In fact, as some of you have heard the passage or the, or the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Their foot shall slide in due time, Deuteronomy 32, 35. That song contains passages like this, For a fire shall be kindled in mine anger and shall burn under the lowest hell. But do you know what's also in that song of Moses? 
a promise of God's mercy to the Gentile people. Even Psalm 117, which in our English Bibles is not only the shortest chapter in the Bible, but it's the one dead center out of the 1,189 chapters. Dead center in your Bible and the shortest chapter that exists in those two verses, one of them is promises of God's mercy to the Gentiles. Second, you notice that every major portion of the Old Testament is quoted. You've got the law quoted. You've got the historical part quoted in 2 Samuel. You've got the poetic portion quoted in the Psalms and the prophetic portion in Isaiah. And here's what else is amazing. These quotations are quoted out of their Old Testament order. But if you pay careful attention, here's what they do. Uh, they actually present a chronological picture of exactly what has happened and will happen to the Gentiles. Look at verse 9. For this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles. That's David talking. So the first one is that the Jews are going to speak to the Gentiles of their Redeemer. Uh, that mirrors Acts 10 through 14 when the Jewish evangelists go to the Gentile world. Uh, what's the next step in the next verse? Rejoice ye Gentiles with this people. Now that pictures Jews and Gentiles rejoicing together. Now that mirrors Acts 15 and onward when the Gentiles are part of the New Testament church. How about the third one? Praise the Lord all ye Gentiles and laud him all ye people. So now it pictures the Gentiles praising God on their own. You see, that pictures the time when the church is going to become overwhelmingly Gentile like it has today, when the Gentiles are praising God as a almost exclusively Gentile church. How about the fourth one? Isaiah said, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, and him shall the Gentiles trust. That pictures the future day when Christ will reign on earth. And yes, it was said to the Jews, part of that earthly reign is going to be over Gentiles. I'd like to draw your attention to that quotation in verse 12 from Isaiah. What exactly does it mean that there's going to be a root of Jesse? In fact, if you look at Isaiah, that comes from Isaiah 11 verses 1 and verse 10. It's, it's a combination of those two verses. In Isaiah 11:1, 1, Christ is referred to as a branch growing out of the stem of Jesse. Jesse was King David's father. So he's pictured there in verse 1 as a, as a branch growing out, as a descendant. But in verse 10, Christ is called the root of David. Now, uh, which is it? If you look at Revelation 22, 16, one of the last statements of the Lord Jesus Christ glorified in the Scriptures, here's what he said, I am the root and the offspring of David. Now, what's he saying? What's a root? A root is the beginning of something. What he's saying is, in respect to his deity, he's the root of David. He's the creator, the originator of David. With respect to his humanity, he's the offspring, he's the descendant. And so when he says, I'm the root and the offspring, he's claiming deity and humanity both, which is an amazing statement. 
It's interesting. It's in Isaiah 11, verse 10. When the Gentiles, it says, will come to trust where Christ is called the root. What does that mean? The Gentiles are not merely looking at a man. They're looking at the one who was the originator and the creator of the great King David and the creator of all the earth who's come as a man to fulfill prophecy and save us from our sins. And what are the Gentiles going to do? It says, in him shall the Gentiles, what's the next word? Build massive cathedrals. Are they going to build massive cathedrals? In him shall the Gentiles prove how much they love God by all their works. In him shall the Gentiles raise up relics and icons and statues and idols. No, it's much simpler yet much more profound, isn't it? In him shall the Gentiles trust. You see, the condition for salvation has always been the same. Whether Jew or Gentile, it's not merely to know about him. It's you must trust him as your Savior. You must believe in Him. The condition's the same for all of you here. What is the singular condition to rescue you from destruction? It's not your goodness. You have none. If you don't like that, I'm sorry. You're at odds with the God that made you. You may as well deal with that now. But the reality is the same God that says you're condemned also opens up the door of salvation to you and says you may enter. But you've got to be willing the same God that was mighty to save Jews is also mighty to save the Gentiles that will trust in Him. Now Paul closes with a benediction and so will we. He says, now the God of hope. Do you honestly look at God as a God of hope? Is He a God who produces and wants us to have a confident expectation for the future, for tomorrow, for today, or is every day just another day to put on the lead jacket? stumble through life's duties. He's manifested this to both Jew and Gentile. If you think about it, what really more could God have done to reach out to men? All the ways He's spoken to them. All the patience He's shown. All the poetry. All the history. All the precepts. All the laws. All the stories. All the blood. All the sacrifices. Without a Bible, with part of a Bible, with an entire Bible, with God speaking from heaven, thundering down and terrifying men, with God coming as a meek lamb to patiently die and bear our sins on a cross. What more could He do? He's reached out to men, that's for sure. He says, May this God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. I mean, as we believe what he says concerning his desires, his purposes, his precepts, and, and how to relate to one another, what's the result? It's joy and peace. It's real spiritual happiness and satisfaction. I was reading Psalm 63 earlier this week, and oh, that statement caught me. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. How's your soul this morning, really? Is it satisfied or is it starving? He's made every provision. None of these ups and downs and struggles have the power to take joy and peace from us. We have to forfeit it.
And of course, increased joy and peace produces an increase in the new horizons of hope that you may abound in it through the power of the Holy Ghost. Isn't it amazing what he's done in the historical panorama to bring together these two diverse groups? But let me ask you this morning, is your trust in the root of Jesse? Of course, what I mean by that is Jesus Christ the Lord, the one who was before David, the one who as a man was born out of David's lineage. You see, it's in him that the Gentiles are called to trust. Have you done so? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for... Lord, your amazing purposes, what you've done historically with the Jews, with the Gentiles, with the early days of the church, with the subsequent happenings. Lord, we praise and glorify you for the different purposes you've had with the different nations, for giving some to be custodians while the fullness of time is awaiting to come. Father, we don't understand all that's transpired, but we are told amazing things. We thank you, Lord, that your mercy has been extended. We thank you, Lord, for those like Rahab in the Old Testament, living in a city marked for utter extermination, and yet you saw her. You saw her reach out to you, and you saw she was willing to listen. And even though she was the only one that was, you spared her. Father, all of us today live in a world full of a Canaanite spirit, and so many are bent on destroying themselves and everyone else with them. But I thank you, Lord, you still save Rahab's today. You look into a world that's going to be destroyed, and you see some who are willing to deal with the hard realities of life and death and sin and judgment and heaven and hell and God and Satan. Father, if there's one here this morning that has not believed in Christ, I pray you give them no rest in their soul until they are brought to that place. Make it so plain to them there's one way of salvation. There's only one. They have a choice to make. Thank you, Father, for giving us hope and a future. Thank you, Lord, for giving us a Messiah, a Savior, to take away sin and to give us righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.